Today we're going to begin a journey through the book of Philippians, an expositional study through Philippians. And, but I've got to tell you as we begin this journey that um, I must acknowledge my indebtedness to other scholars who are more skilled and wiser than I, men from whom I have gained much, uh, men like John MacArthur and Stephen Davies and Ralph Martin and uh, James Montgomery Boyce, Alec Motyer. Even my old seminary professor, Homer Kent, wrote a commentary on Philippians and uh, throw in a little bit of Francis Chan as well. But I have uh, learned from these men, borrowed from these men, been challenged, sharpened, strengthened and encouraged by these men. So they have all poured into me in a sense, as I try to synthesize that to pour into you. But most of all, my dependence is upon the Holy Spirit, who is our guide. It is the Holy Spirit, after all, who gave these very words. And he gave them to us exactly as he wanted them to. So he, being the author of this, is our supreme guide in understanding the book of Philippians. So we are going to trust for how the Holy Spirit is going to lead us through this study. And today I want to begin with a kind of an overview uh, in thinking through Philippians. How do we think through it? In large measure, how we think determines how we live. This is why we are called to meditate on the Word of God, not just read it, but to really think deeply, to meditate on the Word of God and the ways of God. This is why we're told to set your mind on things above where Christ is. Because as we think, that determines how we Live. We're told to guard our hearts and minds. We're told to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. As we think, so we are. And so by way of introduction to this marvelous book of Philippians, I want to uh, try to understand the thinking of Paul. What was going on in his own mind. So we're going to look at this as the, the mind of Paul. We're going to also look at the mind of Christ. Then we're going to look at the mind of the believer. Let's pray. Lord, we devote ourselves to you in this study. Because it's you we want to learn about. It's you, our God, that we want to see. And we trust that your Holy Spirit will be our guide, that you will open our hearts and our understanding to the truths that you have for us uh, in this day and in the rest of our studies through this marvelous book. May you be glorified and praised through all of it. May you be pleased to work in our lives that which uh, you desire. And we commit it and ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So first of all, the, we're going to look at the mind of Paul. And in doing this uh, overview today, we're going to look at a number of different passages. And it may, in a way, be unsatisfying because we're not going to be able to spend much time in each one. 
But we will get to them in due course and spend the, uh, the adequate time on them when we get there. So this, remember, this is kind of an overview study. So in the mind of Paul, what, what was Paul's thinking, his attitude in life? How is he thinking about his situation? How is he thinking about life? How is he thinking about his relationship with Christ and so forth? And the first thing that I note here in the book of Philippians is there is great joy by Paul in the midst of great trial and suffering. Great joy in the midst of great trial. Remember, uh, Paul is writing this book. This is what, called one of the prison epistles. So he's writing this while he's in Rome in prison. He's not on vacation, taking some time off to write a book or a letter. He is in prison in Rome. They were not very hospitable in Roman prisons. They didn't care too much about your rights, your well-being. And so he's in um, a bad situation. And... When he first got to Rome and in prison, he was, he was welcomed at first, but then people kind of forgot about him. And um, over in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, listen to this. The 2 Timothy 1, 16 and 17 says, The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. Uh, hinting that there were others who were ashamed of his chain. What happened is, through time, people kind of lost contact with Paul. They quit visiting him. They quit taking care of him. Um, there were some even who were jealous of Paul. But he was not ashamed of my chain. Listen to this, verse 17. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. Now, why did he have to search zealously for Paul? Why didn't the people there know where Paul was? He was in prison in Rome, but where? Because they had kind of forgotten about him. So not only is he in, in prison in Rome... But he's kind of been forgotten about after a couple of years' time. And uh, perhaps feeling the loneliness of that. But even in that dire circumstance, even in the, the loneliness of that, he exudes great joy throughout this epistle. And I just want to look at a few verses that kind of give us this idea. In chapter 1, starting at verse 12, this is the thinking of Paul. This is the mind of Paul in this circumstance. Verse 12, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Isn't this great, he's saying. All this stuff happened to me, but guess what? It worked for the furtherance of the gospel. This is great. So that it became evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. So what happened? They, he was being chained to uh, the guard, the praetorian guard, the palace guard. Each day he had a different guard who would, he would be chained to. And, and so 
What did he do with those guys who were chained to him? He had a captive audience. They thought he was captive, but they were the captive audience. He, they're chained to him all day, and he's preaching Christ to them. And so he says, so that it became evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 22, he says, All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. His testimony, his word reached even to Caesar's household to, to bring them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. He's exuberant about this. His chains have led to, to this degree of impact for the cause of Christ. It became evident to them and all the rest that my chains are in Christ. In other words, my chains aren't because the Romans arrested me. My chains are in Christ. He's the one who's in control of my life. Even at this point, at this place, it's in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so the gospel is spreading even more. Now, it's true that some indeed preach Christ from envy and strife and some from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add to my, add affliction to my chains. They're thinking that if we do this, the Romans are going to come down harder on Paul. But the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. So how is he thinking about that? What then? Verse 18. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. And yes, I will rejoice. That is how Paul is thinking about his life. It's all about Christ. It's all about the gospel. It's all about what Jesus is doing. So, why was he able to have such joy? What was his, his secret? Letter B, Paul was thinking of Jesus. That was his secret to joy. That is what was on his mind. That is what occupied his thoughts. Not his circumstances, not his chains, not his imprisonment, not his potential death. But he was thinking of Christ. In fact, there are 17 references to Jesus in the first chapter alone. Look at verse 21 as an example, probably the supreme example from chapter 1. Here's how Paul is thinking. Here's his thinking about Christ. For to me, to live is Christ. It's not that Christ was a part of his life, not even an important part of his life. Christ was his life. For me, to live is Christ. That's what he lived for. For me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. I win either way, he says. 
If I get to keep on living, it's for Christ, to me to, for me to live as Christ. And what if I die? I get to go to Christ. It's gain. Either way, I live. So his mind is so fixated on Jesus that he, that he is not concerned about his chains, his imprisonment, his circumstance. And I think that is a secret to joy in our life as well. What are the things that rob us of our joy? It's our circumstances mostly, isn't it? What we're going through, maybe how people are treating us, or maybe things that we are fearful of, anxious about. What's going to happen if? But if we, like Paul, can focus our attention on Christ, if He is our life, then we have joy. And thirdly, the mind of Paul, we see his confidence in Christ. Here's how he is focusing on life. Here's how he's thinking about life. He has great confidence. Remember, here he is in a Roman prison, chained to a guard, but he has great confidence in looking at life. Here's some examples. Chapter 1, verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The, the idea that Jesus never gives up on us. Chapter 1, verse 25 and 26. And being confident of this. Literally, it's the word persuaded. Being confident or persuaded of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you, uh, with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. I am confident that God is going to work through this and, and not only deliver me, but give you great joy. Chapter 2, verse 24 but I trust in the Lord. Uh, by the word trust there is actually the same word as uh, confident back in chapter 1, verse 25. I'm, I, my confidence is in the Lord that I myself shall come to you shortly. Chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. As he's looking forward to, uh, to ultimate things our citizenship is in heaven now he's in rome and it was a great thing to be a roman citizen which paul was but he's saying there's something even greater much greater our citizenship is in heaven that's the realm to which we belong from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform this lowly bodies that we have so that we'll be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. Ultimately, we belong in heaven, and we're going to have a glorified body just like Jesus has one day. I have great confidence in this, Paul is saying. Chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
That's confidence. So we've seen a bit of the mind of Christ through Philippians. Now, I want to think about the, uh, we've seen the mind of Paul. Now we want to look at the mind of Christ here in Philippians. So, you know, throughout the New Testament, and especially in the Gospels, we are told of the, the works of Christ, the teachings of Christ, the miracles of Christ, the, the doctrine of Christ, the life of Christ, the salvation through Christ. But here, uniquely in Philippians, we are, we are told something of the mind of Christ. That is, what was he thinking and how is he viewing coming to this earth? What was his mindset in that? And Philippians, unique among any New Testament book, gives us a glimpse into that. And it's summarized here by two things, humility and obedience. And this must have shocked the holy angels that he would come to earth like that. And it must have scared the fallen angels. But it should be both uh, an encouragement and a humbling experience for us to think through this. First of all, his humility. Chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind or let this way of thinking be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So this is saying, this is what his way of thinking was. This is the mind of Christ here. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, however many different translations there are here, that's how many different renderings of this verse there are because it's a notoriously hard verse to translate from the Greek. But the main idea here is that even though Jesus was in the form or very nature God, He is rightly God. He is truly God. He has eternally been God. Even though that's true, he did not consider it robbery or a thing to be grasped, something that he had to clutch onto and not let go of, to be equal with God. That is, it was true of him that he was totally equal with, with God. He is God. But he was willing to let go of that temporarily. To let go of the privilege of being seen as God. Another way of saying this is, although he was fully God, he came to earth as a nobody. That's what that means. And verse 7, and made himself of no reputation, or he emptied himself. Well, what did he empty himself of? What does it mean he made himself of no reputation or emptied himself? Well, he emptied himself of his independent exercise of his divine rights and prerogatives, including his glory. For instance, in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to the Father and he says, Father, restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world was made. 
the eternal glory that the Son had with the Father, He laid that aside in order to come to earth. That's an example of something He emptied Himself of. Now, Jesus was fully God when He was on earth, but He laid aside His independent exercise of those divine rights. He could have done anything. He could have known anything. He was all-powerful. But He said, I only do the Father's will. That's what I mean by he laid aside the independent exercise. He was dependent on the Father, showing obedience to the Father in all things as our example. And so he was willing to, to do this, to, to empty himself, to make himself of no reputation and taking on the form, again, the very nature of a bondservant. The Greek word there is doulos. It means slave. He came not just as a man, he didn't come as a king to the earth, as a manly king. He came as a, a slave, born into slavery in Israel, born under the boot of the Roman Empire, and taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. So he humbled himself to come as a man, not only as a man, but as the lowliest of men. In verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man. So as anyone who saw him would know this is a man. He is fully man. He humbled himself. Now in laying aside this, his, his right to be recognized as the king of kings. What does that mean? Did he become anything less? Was he less than God in that? I want you to imagine a, a king who's, who's out on the, a lake and in a boat. And this king sees one of his subjects, one of his people, um, drowning. And so before he jumps in to save this person... He takes off his royal robe and his crown, lays them aside, jumps in, saves that person, brings them to shore, and now he is standing on shore all wet and bedraggled, no longer wearing his robe or his crown. Is he any less a king? No, of course not. He laid those things aside, and people might not even recognize he was king, but that doesn't matter. He's still the king. And so it is with Jesus. He laid aside his glory. He was still glorious, but people couldn't see his glory. Well, for one thing, they would be consumed if they tried to look at his glory. No one has seen God at any time and lived. And so he laid those things aside, but he still retained his kingship, his deity. And so not only was he the most humble of eternity, coming as a man, coming as a slave, as if that was not enough humility, verse 8 says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. This means he humbled himself yet another step. If it was possible to go any lower than a slave, he went lower than that. He humbled himself by this and, be, and became obedient to the point of death, 
even death on the cross. And so we see not only his humility, but his supreme obedience. He was obedient to the eternal plan to die on a cross to save us sinners. He was obedient to the Father. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, not my will, but your will be done. He was obedient even to the point of death. And not just any death, but to the crucifixion death. The, the worst kind of death. He was obedient to that. Ralph Martin insightfully observes that his obedience is a sure token of his deity and authority. For only a divine being can accept death as obedience. For ordinary men, it is a necessity. He alone, as the obedient son of his father, could choose death as his destiny. And he did so because of his love. Jesus says in John chapter 10, no man takes my life from me. In fact, no one could do it. No one, not, not all the armies of the earth could take his life from him. He says, no one takes my life from me, but I yield it up of my own. I have the power to lay down my life, and I have the power to take it up again. And so in his death, he was being obedient to allow this to happen every step of the way. He had to allow every insult. He had to allow every strike. He had to allow every stroke of the whip. He had to allow every nail that was nailed into him. He allowed it by his obedience to the point of death. And so we see the mind of Christ is one of being the most humble and obedient to the point of death. And, and finally, here in Philippians, there's a lot to say about the mind of the believer. And I'll just work through these rather quickly since we're running low on time. But first of all, to be like-minded, chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation or encouragement in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. So the mind of the believer is to be like-minded with other believers. This is not about unanimity, but unity. We're all going to have different ideas, opinions, and, um, and God made us purposefully like that. So we're not talking about unanimity, all thinking exactly the one thing, same thing, but thinking in unity as a body of believers. And so he describes that in three ways. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded. First of all, by having the same love. Secondly, by being of one accord. And thirdly, by being of one mind. So um, having the same love means that we love the same things. Being of one accord, that means that we live in harmony together. Of one mind means having the same goals and purposes in mind and working together toward those things. So being like-minded. Chapter 4, verse 2, it's, 
says, I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. In chapter 4, verse 2, it's about individuals, between individuals. Chapter 2, verse 2, it's about the church body itself. And then secondly, being single-minded. Chapter 3, verse 15 says, Therefore, as many as are mature have this mind or have this way of thinking. And if anything else you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Well, what is this, this one way of thinking, this mind that he has uh, in mind here? Well, he says in verse 13 and 14, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, as many of us as mature have this mind. We should all be thinking of this, in other words, that we are pressing forward. We are yearning for the goal that Christ has for us. And we're pressing forward to it. Uh, we're to be a peaceful Minded, our minds at peace. In other words, chapter 4, verse 6 and 7 says, Be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So, three different ways of talking about prayer there. First of all, with prayer, which begins with praise, acknowledging who God is, how great God is. You begin with prayer and then with supplication. Supplication means uh, a humble entreaty. Uh, Excuse me, it's like a subject coming before the throne of a king and asking for a favor, bowing down before them. Uh, A humble asking with prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving. Notice that the thanksgiving comes at the beginning. Not when the thing happens that you're asking for, but at the beginning. That shows trust, faith in Christ. In everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then what happens? Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. And so you can have peace of mind. Uh, D, to be pure-minded. Verse 8 here in chapter 4 says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, Meditate on these things. That is, this is where your mind should be. You should ask, the things I'm thinking about, does it fit with these things? Is it, is it true and noble, praiseworthy, pure? Is it lovely and good report and so forth? To be pure-minded. And finally, to be Christ-minded. Chapter 2, verse 5. And we'll end here. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And what did we see about that? What was his mind? Humility. He humbled himself. We should humble ourselves. And he was obedient 
to the point of death. We should be completely obedient to our Lord. It's not only being Christ-minded, it's not only thinking of Jesus, but thinking like Jesus. So this is just a very quick uh, kind of overview in a way of how to think through Philippians. And we'll begin next week in earnest going through it um, expositionally. So let's pray. Now, Lord, we thank you for this wonderful book. We ask, uh, even as we looked at some things today, that, that you would guide our thinking. We acknowledge that our thinking is not always in line with how you would have us to think. That you would guard our hearts and minds. That you would direct our thoughts that you would encourage us to, to think more about you and less about us and our problems. We ask, Lord, that you would grant your peace, which passes all understanding, in Jesus' name. Amen.